MFs, happy new year from the hustlers. Hustle like you broke, kicking off 2021. Thank goodness we made it to the other side. We are bringing you another strong female veteran of the industry today who represents so many of our ideals as a well-rounded industry hustler, advocate, and educator. 2020 was a long, challenging year, but we are proud to have created a growing body of work. We've hosted a wide array of amazing guests who are shaping and reshaping our perspective on how to approach the concert production business moving forward. We'll be working in coordination with a great number of new people, such as today's guest, as well as one of her business partners, Jim Digby, who's been on the program here more than once. But before we get to her, as always, I'm proud to be surrounded by my good friends, starting with none other than the incomparable Christine Dallas. What's up, Dallas? Not much. Just, you know, enjoying the beautiful South Florida weather here in Miami and trying to stay in the bubble. And, um, you know, wear our masks, as we all should be doing, washing my hands, and hoping like hell I don't become one of the casualties of this disaster. Copy that. Good Brother Banks in the house as well. Brother Banks, what's going on? I'm just happy that we've made it, and I'm having a cocktail just to celebrate that we've all made it into 2021. Hey. Always happy to see Brother Banks with a breakfast cocktail. And my other brother, my lookalike, my twin, my brother Hamilton in the house. What's happening, Brother Hamilton? Had a balanced holiday. Uh, Raiders are still trending. And uh, at least in my mind. So other than that, you know, just stand true. 21, we're here. There it is. So jumping right in with today's guest, Jen Kellogg, graduated from the University of Iowa, where she was a member of the SCOPE program, one of the premier concert production programming departments at a college nationwide. She is a 25-year industry veteran, Started out with Jam Productions. Look forward to talking about her time at Jam. Spent about a dozen years as the tour accountant for the Warped Tour. We've had a couple of other conversations about Warped on past episodes. She is a co-founder of Showmakers, along with Jim Digby. She is the co-founder of the Entertainment Institute. She also teaches producing and touring live entertainment at Columbia College in Chicago. So quite possibly the most education-focused of the guests that we've had so far, and, and very happy to be leading the year with her to dive into it because we believe so much in the importance of education, of teaching touring, 
at the college level, getting people engaged and educated and prepared to jump into this industry. And uh, that in mind, please welcome to the program, Jen Kellogg. Good to see you. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Happy New Year. And I hope 2021 is a great one for you. I hope so, too. I feel like this is the point to have like some good dad jokes about 2020 being hindsight is 2020. I don't know what the joke is, but there's something about 2020 being in the past that we can now make jokes about, right? I think the joke (laughs) is 2020. That's it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, the thing that I miss the most about touring, before you ask me any questions, I just have to throw something out there, is a good production office hang. And I feel like your podcast is that. And so I'm really happy to be able to like have a good production office hang with you guys and like shoot the shit about, you know, talk some shop about the concert industry. We we appreciate that perspective. We we think of it as the types of conversations that we have on the tour bus. Yeah. When we're just hanging out, rolling from city to city, post-show, you know, early morning before loading or what have you. And uh, yeah, we try and create that that vibe. You know, we are very much a touring family and uh, we appreciate you uh, recognizing because that's very much what we aim for and and shit, that is very much what we look forward to getting back to sooner than later. Yeah. Amen. So, I mean, first and foremost, I typically butcher the introductions of the people that I uh, bring out. I, I misrepresent their bios and what have you. And so feel <laughs> free to correct me and tell me where I am wrong, where I got it uh, wrong. And and you wish to, uh, you know, adjust and amend to ensure people capture the spirit of who you really are. I don't know that I have any adjustments. Uh, technically, everything was correct. I was I was the tour accountant for the Warp Tour for nine years, not a dozen, but that's in the same ballpark. But other than that, you were spot on and made me sound uh, much more well-established and fancier than I feel uh, in my normal human life here. So thank you for uh, showering me with all of that praise, I guess. Well, I choose to think that you are, in fact, fancy, and uh, <laughs> and I'm sure our listeners will too after hearing you today. So, I, I mean, you, I mean, let's start with scope because again, education seems to have informed so much of what you do, um, mm-hmm. and you know, I I spent a lot of years working with universities, creating programs, producing events. Uh, in college venues and what have you. And um, and I do believe there are a number of people that come out of college into the industry with that kind of programming experience. You were the finance director, and, and it does appear so much of your experience centers around finance and number crunching and what have you. So, I mean, tell us about your scope experience uh, briefly, just to get us started today. Well, it was really special. And at the time, you'd think it's just, it's what you fall into at the place that you're at. And um, in hindsight, it really was such a unique opportunity to get real world hands-on experience that most college students can't get. So um, Scope was tasked with booking the venues on campus as a real promoter. Um, During my time there, we primarily booked a 1600 capacity ballroom. 
So the first shows I was working on were like real shows selling 1600 tickets. We set real ticket prices. We offered real guarantees and deals to the artist. And that was what allowed us to, um, put on future shows. You know, a lot of colleges are just handed, hand their concert committee a pile of money and say, here, go throw a big party. Um, and we really had to take risks. And if those risks paid off, then we had money that we could, um, risk on future shows. So being involved in that, um, it was, uh, I, I don't know. It really set me up for working in the real world in the, in the real promoters world. So and and I will say I've I believe I've done an event or two at University of Iowa a couple of times. I do remember Scope being one of the more professional operations. It wasn't just you know our spring fling is on April twenty five. Mm-hmm. Who do you got and how much? It's much more you know oh you've got so and so coming through the market. You know our venue might be available on this Tuesday. You know, let's talk about it. What ticket prices are you, you know, able to command? We think on your campus, you know, again, much more like a true promoter agent conversation. You know, look, we can sell $20 tickets here. If we do 1,200 of them, we can't meet your $60,000 guarantee. That's not going to work for us. You know, and and actually, it it really does. um, It's a very impressive program. So kudos for that. And, And did you then go directly from Iowa to jam or, or how did No, that actually here's a part of my career story. I don't, that doesn't come up very often. So I know you like to have some unique bits on your, uh, your podcast. So, um, this was back in 1998. So the internet was barely a thing and certainly not how people were searching for jobs or, or whatever. So, you know, being a finance major, I knew that, uh, Well, I knew that getting into the concert industry didn't pay all that well and was kind of hard to find jobs in. So I figured I should at least make an effort to find a typical finance major job. I applied for two things through the the college um, career center. One, or I probably applied for more, but ended up with two interviews. One was working at Caterpillar in Peoria, uh, Illinois a company that makes earth moving equipment. Um, and I left that interview going, wow, there's, that is about as far away from, uh, the type of work experience that I envision myself being in. Um, the other was an interview with American national bank, uh, which is after they got sold a number of times is part of chase now. Um, and that interview went well. It was a, for a credit analyst in middle market lending. And I remember saying to myself, like, you know what, if, if they offer me X amount of money, which at the time as a college student seemed like an unfathomable, it was kind of like the high end of what a finance major could get offered at that time. If they offer me that, I got to take it and at least try this out. And it was back when, um, companies would pay for your MBA. So Banks, especially, uh, and other companies like that, you'd work for them for three years, spend three years getting your MBA part time, and then spend the next three years kind of, quote unquote, paying that off by still working at the company. So I had in my head like, all right, well, if I take this job, I can, you know, do this, get my MBA paid for, um, be in Chicago where there's some really great MBA programs. And then, you know, nine, 10 years down the road, I'll get back into rock and roll in the concert industry. So I ended up taking that job. So I started out my career at a bank wearing a suit every day on a uh, fancy banking, like the profession, um, 
it's like the main banking floor where everything you had to have your jacket on from nine until five every day. And it was, you know, I am not the most overly feminine. So I'd be kind of criticized for not wearing fancy high heels. And um, it was just not the environment that I wanted to work in. Exactly. So once I got started in that about six months into it, um, I was really looking at, well, what are my next steps in this? The next step is to become a lender. And I don't really like selling money. (laughs) You know, our money at American National Bank is just as green as, you know, the bank across the street's money. And, you know, like I just am so far away from the end product. Like there's no intrinsic reward here. And I remember sitting there thinking like I'm working on a loan for a company that licensed Disney uh, characters that then makes like pajamas and stuff. So somewhere out there, there's a little kid that is like thrilled to get their like Disney princess pajamas. And like, I'm holding on to that thought is like something I'm doing is making a difference in somebody's life, but it's so far away from like this Mm. suit at this desk in these meetings about like, you know, that I'm just, I need to be closer to the end product. I need to feel that intrinsic reward that I'm making a difference in something. And that's where I would like daydream about like, I remember back in college, the lights would go down in the, you know, ballroom and then that the stage lights would go on and the crowd would go crazy. And I would stand at the back. There was a little balcony up in the back that would go up and watch from there and just watch that whole crowd go crazy and know like I had something to do with this and it doesn't matter who I am. The crowd doesn't need to know who I am, but I help make this thing happen. And that experience uh, and the banking made me go, you know what? I got to get, <laughs> there's no way I can spend 10 years doing this. I got to get out of this back into rock and roll. Um, so my banking career lasted about uh, six or seven months before I, um, called up the, the guy, the, the advisor for the concert committee and said, you know, who can you connect me with? How can you, how can I get out on a concert tour? Like I want to do numbers on a concert tour. What's the first step in doing that? And, um, he said, well, you know, I don't know exactly, but let me call Don Sullivan at jam productions. And you know, that we had worked with him on things, uh, as co-promoters at scope. And I, you know, you have those memories of like that one, like those, the crystal clear sound, you can still hear it. I remember being, uh, on my lunch break from the bank. It was, uh, it was, this is in downtown Chicago. There was like a Wendy's in the basement of the building a couple blocks away that had a payphone Cause I didn't have a cell phone cause it was still <laughs> back. <laughs> I feel like I aged myself on those things, but I'm all right with that. And I remember calling him and saying, um, Kelly from the University of Iowa said that I should call you. And I remember the first thing Don ever said to me was, yes, you should call me. We're actually like looking for somebody in our accounting office. And it wasn't the thing that I thought that I was trying. I was trying to get into touring. I wanted to be on the road and live on a tour bus. And um, and he was like, but we've got you know this opportunity to you know it's a, it work in the accounting office here at JAM. So I went in for the interview on that and it, it was, uh, it ended up being a great fit and kind of my foot in the door to the, the real world of, um, the concert industry. Well, it turned out there was a common thread of finance in your, uh, background even more than I knew. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good story. And that, that just reinforces what we tell our listeners all the time that you could do anything, mm-hmm. anything at all. In the music business, there is that job 
And it can be done in the concert touring industry and not just, you know, at a large corporation sitting behind a, you know, cubicle, um, you know, on the 27th floor of, you know, whatever downtown building. Um, and I'm trying to remember if we've had any tour accountants on this podcast yet. No. We we keep no. talking about it. No. We have a number of friends that do that. It just They're hasn't lined up yet. They're scared to talk. They don't want to be heard. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't have to discuss the numbers. Just talk. You know, show us that perspective that a lot of people don't understand. Especially the great accounts that come to you with Padium. Remember the old days, guys? They come and you knew they knew your name. They say hi. How you doing? Yeah. You mean it doesn't just go in week. your check? No, it still the good old days. <laughs> it still happens. There's still you get that envelope on some tours. You know, still really, happens. you've had that in recent years. Yeah. I haven't seen yeah, that. Yeah, like last years. year, last year, yeah, yeah, it still happens. I know. Well, where on work tour, happen. we would give people the option: Do you want it in your check or do you want it in cash? And so I had to spend a lot of time explaining to people that it doesn't matter how you receive it; you're still getting taxed on it. So even mm-hmm. if we give it to you in cash you're still getting taxed on it. And, and then people would say, well, should I get it in my check or in cash? And I said, well, do you want to save it and have it when you go home? Or do you want to blow it up on the next day off? That's, then, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough offer. That's a you know, tough decision to make right there. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's get back wisdom. to that. And by the way, Dallas, I appreciate you chiming in there and calling out all those tour accountants and letting them know how disappointing it is that they won't come on here and let us know. But we're proud to have Jen with us, and she certainly has that experience in spades. I can't wait to get into the Warp Tour and her Warped experience from, again, mm-hmm. I mean, it's got to be bananas to be the tour account for a tour that's rolling with, you know, six stages and 30 bands or whatever it is, um, working alongside Kevin Lyman and what have you. But but before we get ahead of ourselves, so you're, you're at Jam, mm-hmm. and you are... As I understand it, you get involved with their minor league baseball tours, uh, although that might be later. So why don't you give mm-hmm. us a little bit of the experience there? Sure. So I started out in the accounting office, uh, which was five, four or five people. Um, and the desks were literally in a row of kind of uh, – levels of responsibility. So I started at the farthest down desk, which was accounts payable and spent all day just data entry. So I can 10 key the, (laughs) like nobody's business. Um, But, and I think that you could probably gather this from the little that you know me already, that was not challenging or interesting for a long-term career. So, um, Fortunately uh, for me, somebody a couple of desks up left about six months into my um, time there. And so I got to scooch down a desk and start doing um, more things that were involved with uh, processing the show folders. Um, so I got to see all of the expenses from um, the you know each of the shows, doing a lot of payroll um, and you know, getting into that level of detail I was able to um, end up being the on-site person when we would do stadium shows. So if we were doing things at Soldier Field or other large stadiums, the talent buyer would frequently bring along somebody from the accounting office to just help process all the paperwork and and facilitate that. We would sometimes have 100 or so new employees on one of those shows because we paid all the stagehands directly. Um, So being the the payroll person and the one that kind of knew about – 
getting into that stuff that it was easy for me to be the person that kind of went and helped out on site on the stadium stuff. Um, also I found during that time that if I got my work done as quickly as possible and asked for more work, uh, I got to do more interesting things in the accounting office and it kind of helped keep my brain from, um, uh, you know, atrophying, <laughs> I guess when I was working on, you know, kind of, uh, monotonous work. That's not what I really wanted to do. Not that there's anything wrong with the details of bookkeeping, but, you know, I really wanted to be on site and I really wanted to be more involved in the, in the events where they were happening. Um, and I didn't, I'm not really a nine to five desk job sort of person. So I spent, um, you know, my time in the accounting office shadowing our head production manager. Uh, and he really was able to teach me how to put on an arena show from, you know, the production side. And that positioned me well for when a talent buying position opened up. I had the numbers side from being in the accounting office and seeing all the show folders and all of the show expenses. And I had the production side to really understand what those numbers were representing. So I was able to step into a talent buying position, um, being able to quickly jump into budgeting shows, settling shows and, and, um, being out on covering the shows on the tours. Very cool. So a hustler, as we talk Mm -hmm. about well-rounded, you know, aggressive and looking to, uh, learn as much as you can. And in so many of the stories we've heard, you know, it's just a matter of you bide your time the opportunity presents itself. Somebody stops showing up one day, you insert yourself, you excel, and a new opportunity comes along. One thing leads to another. You're now settling, buying major stadium productions. You spent how long at Jam then before you moved on? Um, About nine or 10 years. So I was in the accounting office for four or five years. Then I was a talent buyer for four or five years about. And yeah, I'll say that, you know, you have to go get it. Nobody's offering up, hey, here's this opportunity to come learn. You have to be, I mean, I, I remember like, you know, really having to convince the production manager, like, Hey, let me come shadow you. Not, I just, I will follow you around and ask you questions and help out. And I will not be in the way. And like, you know, please let me come do this. And I really had to talk him into it um, just because it was not a structured part of, you know, nobody had really asked for that specific thing before. Um, And that would, that's, that made the biggest difference in my career. And I learned everything that I know from asking people lots of questions. So I spent a lot of that time um, that I was shadowing him. um, And, and it kind of got to the point after a couple of shows where we'd show up at six o'clock in the morning He'd be like, here's the radio. You got this. And then he would disappear. <laughs> He'd be gone all day. And I'd be like, are you really sure you want to just leave me in charge? But um, but that I, that's how I learned. And, um, you know, t- I took that opportunity and really ran with it and, and had to go seek it out for myself. You know, it wasn't uh, – there wasn't any formal um, program to learn how to take the next step. Um, I really had to – find the people that were willing to answer all my questions and give me a chance. Well, I want to pivot and get into your experience with Warped, which followed soon after Jam, but I I would be remiss if I didn't first ask about 
a particular tour on which you were the tour rep back in 2008. Our in-house tech support is a big science guy himself. And I know he's one of those types who loves, you know, the Game of Thrones tour when it comes to town and he's into all that crap. So Wow. <laughs> no, it's amazing and it's wow. brilliant. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just being provocative. It's not crap. It's it's no it 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 isn't actually it's it's pretty impressive the way they put these things together. It's very thank you. It is intense. The the lighting design sooner does the lighting design is very impressive. The video, the orchestration. I I I'm being provocative because uh, you know that's my way. But you were the rep on Star Trek: The Tour. Tell us about that. Well, let me tell you the funnest thing about that was it was at the Queen Mary Dome. So I lived on the Queen Mary for two months. Okay. Pre-COVID, thankfully. Yes. Keep going. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know if it's haunted. I do know that um, the walls and everything in the boat are made of styrofoam. So uh, because it's like it's a boat. So they made everything very light. So like you can hear what's happening in the room next to you like you are in the same room. It's crazy. Um, so Star Trek, the tour was a traveling exhibit that didn't end up traveling anywhere. Um, I was, uh, you know, the kind of the promoter rep. Um, and it was intended to spend two months in each location and then, and kind of travel on. And once they got into the first one, there were a couple of things that became obvious about, um, just some things inherent to the tour. So foot traffic would have been really important. Um, so being located in a place where you've got people walking by that are like, Oh, Hey, Star Trek. I've heard of that. Let me go check it out. And the location that we were in didn't really provide any foot traffic. So, um, you really, we were really only getting those diehard fans that, um, went out of their way to come to the exhibit. And, um, so, you know, over time that tour just ended up kind of some of the pieces didn't really align for it to continue on. Um, but I was the promoter rep. I ran the box office on that. One of the best things about running the box office in the Star Trek tour was seeing all of the people come through the box office dressed up on just like (laughs) random Tuesday. Here's the Trekkie (laughs) dressed up in matching outfits with their three dogs in like a wagon dressed up as the same Star Trek character. It was fascinating. Super fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there were, they had some actual set pieces from some of the shows. So the bridge, they had the bridge from a couple of the shows that you could go get, like they were photo ops and, uh, the beam me up Scotty thing. I'm not a Trekkie person myself. I'm actually more of star Wars. I got the star Wars tattoo. I'm all like Yoda is my guy. Um, but so whatever that thing is, the transport that they say beam me up, they, the best, souvenir that you could buy was a lenticular photograph where when you turn it one way you're there and when you turn it the other way you're not there that's dope yeah yeah very impressive and you have one yes i do Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Okay. Moving on. I'm, I love that you oh, said Yoda man. is your guy. I love <laughs> that. I think that's fantastic. Um, I'm sorry, Banks. You have something to contribute? No. There? No. I just. I just think that you're the way you're talking down to it. You, you're not in agreement. You're not excited about this. We are excited about this. I am excited about this. Matt I is mean, only Star excited Trek. about soccer. Talk to me about your excitement. I have no issue with it. I. I. I was simply moving on to the next thing. But let's let's stay there for a minute, Banks. Right. Tell it's us. Quite, it's quite Tell, no, right. no, no. You opened right. the door. Tell right. us about your experience as a Trekkie. No, I just, I appreciate what she's referring to. I'm, I'm a big Trekkie and a big Star Wars guy as well. So I was totally enthralled with the story. So that's all I'm saying. Can you really be both? Yes, you can definitely be both. Yeah. I'm a Star Wars guy. I think 100% it's either, I think it's either or. I don't think it's really not either or. Both. You can be both. Well, I and I think that from a <laughs> pop culture phenomenon standpoint, I mean, the exhibit really was interesting, even if you're not into that particular, you know, franchise. It was just so interesting to see like the props that they have. It would be like a wooden uh just like a wooden block that um they would it would be like a phone that we have now, right? That they were using. Yeah. They really They were doing FaceTime. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they really yeah. foretold the future of technology yeah. and to see what they were using as props to, to that we now have in real life was really kind of interesting. Yep. I didn't like their guns. The little stun guns suspect to look like a it was a phaser. A phaser. It was <laughs> yeah, I'm from more Star Wars. Star Wars was more real. Even though they're both fake, but Star Wars was more real. <laughs> <laughs> Dallas, what do you got to add here? Tell us, Dallas. Trekkie, Star Wars, what what do you think? Sadly, I'm not really neither. either. <laughs> either oh. neither weather. Oh, neither. that is disappointing. Come on, Dallas. Sorry, I don't know. Nothing. I, I just kind of missed that whole thing. Never okay. Really well, took I off. also worked on. I also worked on the uh, tour of America's Best Dance Crew. Maybe maybe oh. that is something people. Mm. <laughs> Dallas is that more in your, that one your world? <laughs> <laughs> Dallas, do you like Pop anything? It. Dallas is a hater. Let's be honest. <laughs> no, actually, I'm not you're a hater. hater. It's just the things I like Matt, are you know not what. Yeah. I'd rather go do. Well, other I'm very things. much a hater, but there are also things that I <laughs> love. I, own it. I consider that balance. Mr. Motherfucker. Balance. Yeah. You know, I can go do four nights of fish. That that I'm down with. That's fun. She will swim that ass. She will do some water. (laughs) Venetian Aquatic Club. Club. And then there's that. And then there's that. (laughs) Okay, okay. Moving on. So you get introduced to Kevin Lyman, or you already know him somehow. You join the Warped family. Oh, do you want to know how? I, I mean, yes, please. So <laughs> when I was a talent buyer at Jam, the very first thing that I worked on when I moved into becoming the, you know, being on the talent buying team was, <clears throat> get ready for it, the Krusty Demon Global Assault Tour. Wait, what? Exactly. What? <laughs> say say that, that again. Awesome. The was that Krusty or Krusty? <laughs> Krusty, like Krusty the Clown, but not Krusty uh-huh. the Clown. It's not from The Simpsons. So the Krusty Demon Global Assault Tour. Global Assault. <laughs> yep, Global Assault. So it originated in Australia, where it oh. was a big brand and did very well. And Kevin brought it to the United States. It's um, motor cross bikes doing flips and stuff in on like uh. dirt 
motorized bikes doing flips in an arena. So the issue with that, the reason that that only lasted five shows was, um, you know, when you're building a brand in the concert industry, bands start out playing clubs and then they play bigger clubs and they're playing general admission theaters and then they're moving up to arenas, right? You've had time to build an audience, grow an audience. Um, Because this was motorbikes doing flips on dirt, you needed a certain amount of square footage to be able to put this performance on. So it had to start in arenas. So it still sold really great for its first time in you know, in the United States, but it wasn't doing full on arena numbers, um, to keep it financially afloat. So, um, through that, I had met Matt Malice, who was the tour accountant for, and, and is the business manager for all of Kevin's stuff. And, uh, so my very first shows that I was settling as a talent buyer were with Matt Malice and who also then did warp tour. So when I left jam to become a freelancer, um, he was I one of the people that I reached out to, um, saying, "Hey, I w- would love to get on the road as a tour accountant. You know, let, think of me if you if you hear anything." And he was like, "I'm trying to get off the road. Do you want to come do Warp Tour?" And initially, I was like in my head, like that doesn't really sound like that. That sounds like a lot, <laughs> like <laughs> no days off, long days. Like you hear like nightmare stories about it, right? Um, and so initially, I was like, "Well, I actually just put in my notice yesterday. I'm going to like." put some feelers out and see what's out there. And he called me up again a year later and said, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to get off the road. Are you interested at all? So, um, at that time I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Sounds, sounds like fun. I'll go to try and, uh, loved it. Loved it. So that's how I got into the warp tour world. So, I mean, again, you clearly have an impressive background in finance, but jumping into the Warped Tour world, you're dealing with, I mean, paint the picture. How many bands, how many stages, how many crews, how many people are you dealing with it as, as tour account? And, and were you the one or were there one, were you one of a couple? What, what was the structure? Um, so some big picture statistics about the warp tour every year, it would do about 42 shows in about 50 days, 50, 52 days. <laughs> so there was, uh, rarely a week that went by. We almost always did six shows in a row. And then sometimes we would do 13 or more. Um, <laughs> really right? healthy, really this- healthy environment. Right. So this is why initially I was like, wow, that sounds awful. Uh, but it's not, it's not as bad as it sounds. So um, there would usually be 80 to hundred bands, usually about eight stages. We would have somewhere between, uh, you know, in the vicinity of 800 people on the road. Um, a lot of the vehicles were band vehicles, but we would have usually 20, 22 production buses, productions and sponsors. Um I want to say, uh, I mean, like I said, eight stages, they were traveling mobile stages and, you know, handful of trucks to go along with it. So, um, the payroll I handled was usually about a hundred people. Um, and so that was also, you know, their per diems, whether they got it in cash or on their check. Um, and I settled for all of the, ba- with all the bands, um, and, you know, the financial settlements with the promoters. So, um, I'm really good with figuring out a process and how to manage information and make sure every single I is dotted and every single T is crossed. I really love coming up with like a process to do things accurately and efficiently. Um, so it, it, 
that kind of volume was a good fit for me and kind of like a fun project. So uh, I started out having an assistant and then that first year looked at, you know, well, if I make these changes in my process, I could probably do this without an assistant. Um, and actually used that as a way to negotiate like, Hey, if you know, yeah, (laughs) you don't have to pay for that person's bus spot. And so you could, you can save some money on the bus spot and you can give me that person's salary. So I can, you know, this will work. This is a win-win. But is it, but was it? It was. Yes. Uh, and and that was, I had no assistant for like a handful of years. And then, um, there were some things that kind of logistically changed on the the volume of cash that we were dealing with on site. So brought somebody on to just mostly handle some of the cash transactions. But, um, so the last couple of years I had an assistant again, but it actually became in some ways more work when things got more digital where you're scanning everything in and, you know, Okay, I, I need to clarify one thing. Okay. You said there were about 800 people on the road, but you were settling with around 100. Does that yeah. mean there is a representative of each band or each department yeah, so, or so what each, have you? Each band would have their normal touring crew. So they would have a tour manager um, and then whatever additional crew they would have. So the tour would have employee, the production employees on their payroll. Uh, sometimes sponsors would utilize the tours payroll services um but the bands all got were self-contained right so they're getting a flat guarantee and then they're taking care of their self their transportation their crew whatever their expenses are um so i would have at the beginning of the tour all the tour managers would check in and i would go through the payment options and do you want to get do you want just to have a wire sent? Do you want to have a check sent every week? Do you want to come pick up cash sometimes? Do you want to come pick up a cash every day because you need the money to put gas in the van to get to the next city? Um, so each band, you know, there was a wide range of, you know, small bands that are hoping to sell enough t-shirts to get to the next place. And then there's, you know, the main stage bands are obviously in a much different financial situation. So um, there were usually... 15 bands that I would see coming in to get paid every day. But most of them, it was uh, most of the bands. It was just keeping track of who had picked up cash and making sure that they played the shows that they were supposed to play. And then compiling all that spreadsheet information to have the business office cut checks or send wires. All right. Wow. I have two more questions that I'm trying to picture the way that workflow is with people in and out of the office. And, you know, most tour accountants, at least in my experience, you know, it's a two, three, four act tour, sometimes five, but Mm -hmm. you know, what you're talking about, the volume is crazy. So I'm trying to one, I'm trying to envision the structure of my day. Well, I mean, you can tell us that, but I'm yeah. trying to imagine how float works, if if bands have float, or if it's just a matter of, you know, you take your allocation and you figure it out for yourself, don't come to me, you know, to settle up runner receipts and what have you or anything like that. And then my, my second question, which you, you kind of raised yourself, was in terms of merch. Are you settling merch? Are bands settling their own merch themselves? How is merch being sold and how is that being settled? So remind me about the merch after I tell you about the first question. Um, 
So I found that with this volume of people involved, you have to give people rules and parameters a little bit and not from a bossy do it my way thing, but just so that all of this can happen within the short time frame that we have. Um, so I would set up my, my transacting hours were noon to six. And that was the time where I would make sure I was at my desk. And bands could come in and get paid. Employees could come in and ask questions about why they had so much taxes withheld on their check. Um, runner, the person that ran the runners could drop off their float and get refloated. Whatever people needed to stand in front of me at my computer and ask me or hand me things, noon to six were my transacting hours. Um, that allowed me to at six o'clock, eat dinner, FaceTime with the family and go into settlement mode so that I didn't have people trying to do transactions while I was trying to do settlement. So I really tried to separate those times in my day. And then before noon, it was my make sure the box office is doing what it's supposed to be doing and the tickets are at the right price. And, you know, that whole flow is um, what it should be before doors. And that was also kind of my downtime during the day. So I would uh, get up, get the, you know, fresh ticket counts to get to Kevin, make sure the box office is going and then kind of chill out and have like my downtime because sometimes I would be settling, you know, late into the evening. Um, so that was the way that I really kind of structured it so that everybody could get what they needed without uh, all being on top of each other. Wow. Okay. Okay. And, and, and then with merch. Right. Merch. So, um, the, I'm trying to think of like the, the, the best way to like structurally explain this. So when you look at the warp tour festival site, we can go from a, an empty field to doors being open in under three hours. Like we could even do it in like two, two and a half hours if needed. And the reason that that can happen is every 10 by 10 tent that you see out there has a team of people behind it, whether it's the one person that's setting up the merch or, you know, every band has a team of people. So bands would sell their own merch there was a house fee that the bands would pay and then to the tour and then the tour would pay a house fee to the promoter. So I did not have to handle that specifically. Um, there was somebody that, uh, a merchandise manager person that would collect off the bands. When you say fee, was it a flat fee or what you mean a percentage? It would be, near impossible to do a percentage for the whole warp tour as right. a per uh, yeah. so it, it was a flat fee um uh, but we collected a percentage off of the bands which i don't think is too much to tell you guys <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> um nothing shady was happening it was just the way that logistically it made sense to collect off of the bands and then uh logistically made sense to pay the promoter so okay okay so you came into warped in 2009, as I understand. Now, Warped started in, was it 95, I believe? 96? Yep. So Warped is already a, let's call it a well-oiled machine or something yep. like that by the time you get involved. Now, we had Shelly Lynn Brandler on the program from Tada oh, uh, a while Shelley. back. And, and we had a great episode with her. If you haven't heard it to our listeners, go back and check it out. Jen, you should listen to that one too. We had a lot of fun with her, but she... She gave us one of our favorite phrases on this podcast to date, 
Oh my god! She I, told cannot, us, I cannot wait to hear what it is. Quit well, reading read the paperwork. What is by on? I remember off the mind. What is it? Quit looking at your notes. You asking me? Yeah. She's what's telling her, what's you. Her, you. I'm I'm just trying to make sure that I'm keeping my thoughts clear. I know very well what the <laughs> phrase is because she talked about how Ice T would tell her anytime she had a problem, she just had to pimp past it. Oh, right. You just got to pimp past it. Just making sure, but you cheated, though. You looked at the paperwork. Oh, don't you worry about a thing, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) You just sit back and listen and make comments from the peanut gallery. That is all Uh, right. Okay. 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 Time to change that voice again. Jump in anytime. Jump in anytime. (laughs) Anyway. Banks just showed us, by the way, he is actually wearing a Star See? Wars shirt today. Love Going it. back to that conversation. Serious. Um, He's on anyway. the dark side. So, but what Shelly Lynn was talking about was how in the early days of Warped, you know, they were working on a, a shoestring budget and they were trying to feed all these hundreds of people. So they were essentially, and they couldn't do three meals a day. They were doing one Big meal. And and what was the phrase she talked about that the, she learned how to make that meal? It was something like long and lean or something like that. What was it? What was it? I think that's what she said, long and lean, yeah. No, no, no. That wasn't it. It wasn't that too was something, it was, Yeah. I think it was that. Tech support, if you're listening and you can tell us what it was, that would be helpful. But anyway, whatever that was. The question to you is, I mean, did you face any of those difficulties? Were there any kind of like crazy quirks about Warped Tour that you learned in your experience as the tour accountant where where you just had to come up with your own way of handling this situation in a unique way? And when you face those challenges, you just pimp past it. Yeah, probably. But first, I've got to say, I love Shelly. She was one of my favorite people. And the one of the things I miss the most about not being on tour is, especially in this pandemic, is I just want to go to catering and have like food out and I just pick what I want. Like, I don't want to have to go to my kitchen and think about what to cook. And uh, so I, I certainly miss the, the Tada catering was she did an amazing amount of delicious food for a large, large volume of people on like a, on a budget. I mean, she killed it and her whole team, I mean, just really impressive that they could feed that many people that many times a day um, and tasty, tasty stuff. So that was not what you were asking me, though. Um, not, not at all. But thank you for for the. Yeah. <laughs> um, did I? So I would say the thing that I did not anticipate being in my world when I took the warp tour job um, was, and every tour is different when you're working with someone on what exactly. Are you what? What is your job responsibilities? And for whatever reason, some time in the past, Kevin had decided that um, the tour accountant one of the job responsibilities was kind of to make sure that the box office functioned the way it was supposed to. And I think that that's because it's tied in with selling the tickets and the revenue. And but sometimes on the warp tour, this would mean that he would radio for me and be like, you got to get up to the box office. The lines are too long and we've got the doors open and music is playing and we've got people waiting at the box office. We got to get this lined out. 
So it became part of my job to unfuck the box office. Like, all right, so the uh, the box office is fucked up. Office. I gotta go I unfuck like the box that's, office. That's that's another one. <laughs> unfuck the box office. I yes. like that. Okay. And okay. How, how could you have? How can you be in control of that when you're not in control of the the flow of 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 the, of, of the audience? Well, um, being persuasive to a wide variety of people in a wide variety of roles, even if you're not their boss is something that I think, uh, is key when you're in management positions on, on tours. Um, so I would, I was the one that knew the box office manager from having, you know, done a small amount of advance. Here's what we're going to need for comp tickets. And here's who's authorized to pick them up. And I need this cash advance frequently ends up in the box office managers and I need the ticket counts. So I was the one with the relationship with the box office manager, even if it was a very new relationship. Um, and so I was able to go in and be like, okay, here's, here's what needs to happen. (laughs) Kevin's not happy about the lines. This is what we need to do to solve the problem. And then I would help identify, is it because cash sales are not going fast enough? Is it because there's not enough people selling? Do we need to open another window? Is it because they have pre-pulled all of the will call, but they've done it at three separate times. So nothing's actually in alphabetical order. Um, Are they pulling the will call as people come up? And that's going to like, what can we do to make whatever's happening here go faster? Because we were in a situation that was a little bit unique compared to other, a lot of the other shows, which doors open at 11 o'clock in the morning. Music starts at 11.10, but on the tickets it says noon, but it starts at like 11.10 usually because there's people in the venue. So they're walking around a venue. They need, you want to have something on, right? Right. The warp tour wouldn't release its schedule. In in fact, it got a new schedule made every morning. Kevin would make the schedule in the morning. So nobody, no band knew what time they were going on stage. No stage managers knew the order of the bands until like nine 30 in the morning for an 11 o'clock doors. That's crazy. (laughs) And right? they're not sharing backline, right? They're just they're no. throwing go. No, yeah. So and sometimes bands would get moved to a different stage, so there's, they'd have to move all their stuff. wasn't on the truck by the stage that they were going to be on that day. And the reason all of this happened was when Kevin was working Lollapalooza, they would have a set line and Lollapalooza toured. Um, they would have a set lineup, and there would be an amazing artist on in earlier in the day, and there'd be nobody there watching because the audience wouldn't show up until later when the headliners were on. And it was really important to Kevin that discovery of new music was a really big element of people coming to the warp tour. So that's why you couldn't get the schedule until you got into the venue. And that meant we had 10 to 20 plus thousand general admission tickets (laughs) showing up at the same time with, you know, ready to get in because maybe their first, their favorite band is going on first. So while this is happening, if there's a line at the box office that they're not even in the get into the venue line. So that's where getting people in was a really uh, important moment of the day because it could really affect the audience's experience that they were having at the show. Um, so it was kind of a fun element that I ended up involved in, but it would it, that those would be the it has to happen right now crisis moments of we've got four thousand people in line to buy tickets 
something has to change here. And venues, because this is not their normal day-to-day problem, this is, we are the only tour that comes through that has this sort of unique um, audience flow issue. Um, the I would come in and kind of the first year be like, I, I see the warp tour every day. You see the warp tour once a year. So please trust me on this and trust that I have seen this exact problem before and here's what we need to do about it. And sometimes it was my first relationship contact with that um, venue. They'd be like, oh, no, no, we have big concerts all the time. And by the end of the day, every single one of the people that had said that would be like, you know, you're right. We're going to listen to you next year. So mm-hmm. I came up with a box office advance that had best practices, especially before um, what, it was more of an issue when tickets were being held at will call and being pulled and then brought to uh, this field in the middle of nowhere because we're putting on a show in a field in the middle of nowhere where there's not internet. Um, and so they would have to pre-pull the will call would, would frequently be an issue that would um, arise. So helping those box offices find the best way to distribute those tickets quickly. And then also a lot of times Kevin and I would stand out front of the box office and sell, we get a pile of tickets and sell them for cash really fast because they were $40 for a ticket. So we didn't have to make change or anything. Um, And I would make sure that I had my laminate kind of clipped up higher so that people could see that we were official because we look like we're just selling tickets. But I mean, we're standing there with like crowds of people around us selling tickets as fast as we can to get that chunk of people in. So yeah, I guess when it came to the box office stuff, I, I, I pimped past it. Pimping past it. There it is. Well, I love that story. Tech support did come up with the answer. Shelly Lynn's other phrase. It was deep and narrow. Oh my God. Deep and narrow. That's fantastic. And I'm just going to leave that alone. So moving on, that sounds like a crazy, crazy experience. Unfuck the box office. Another new catchphrase here. Uh, it hustle like you broke. So you leave Warp Tour, but in your time, I, I believe this actually is something you started with Kevin, or at least during your time with the Warp Tour. You co-found, co-find, co-find. Can you co-find something? You co-founded the Entertainment Institute and brought fans unique backstage workshops with artists on tour. Tell us yes, what that I, means. Yes, I did. Um, well, there, there maybe is kind of a little bit of a segue in there that I should provide. And another fun warp tour story is, um, out of my nine years on the warp tour, two of those, I was uber pregnant. In fact, my first warp tour, I was due three and a half weeks after the tour ended. So <laughs> what? <laughs> Cutting it close there. That's rock and roll. <laughs> that uh, that is. I I had always thought. Who's the crazy lady in the parking lot? <laughs> selling selling tickets. tickets, scalping tickets. Like so pregnant. <laughs> yes, that was me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I had always thought 
that, you know, I, I know what I want to do. I've got a plan. Like, you know, I'm a planner. I'm going to plan out life and I'm going to know what I want in the future. And I anticipated though, I knew I wanted to have a family at some point. And, uh, I anticipated that I wouldn't want to be on tour if I was pregnant or had kids. I just kind of assumed that that's what like society tells us, right? Especially for women that like, you're supposed to want to stay home. And that's the thing that makes sense to do. And so I sort of had had that in my head. Um, And so the order that things happened in really had a big effect on my career. I was not looking for touring work um, because I was, you know, trying to start a family and it's hard to do that when you're on the road and the husband's at home. Um, So I was, I was took a little bit of time to like, all right, well, I'll figure out my next step in my career, but I'm not really looking for touring work. And it was, you know, a month or two into trying to figure that out that I got the call about warp tour. And I was like, you know, why am I just sitting around like waiting? Like I should, if I want to do this, I should go do it. I'm not pregnant. We'll figure out if he needs to fly out to visit me on tour to make this work. Like we'll make it work. Um, so I took that warp tour job and it came along with the taste of chaos it was the smaller indoor winter version of the warp tour. Um, so I did the, it, that was happening in February and I got offered this job in like early January. Um, and I really thought like, well, all right, you know, we'll, we'll make it work, but I'm not just going to sit at home. That's silly. So I took the job and a week later found out I was in fact pregnant. So I'm pretty confident had that happened in the other order, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. And that would have had a, a huge different, I'd be doing something different. I don't know what it is, but I would, it would be something different. So um, the timing of that baby happened to work with the warp Tour and it was cutting it kind of close, but that was just... how how it happened second baby definitely conceived with the warp tour schedule in mind and he did a good job of showing up on the first month of trying so their birthdays are actually like really close together wow yeah um so i had an interesting work-life balance for a few years where i did the warp tour for two months in the summer and then i was a stay-at-home mom for 10 months the rest of the year and each of those years, I, a big life thing happened. So, you know, I had a newborn the first year, and then the next year we were um, selling our condo and buying a house, and then the next year we were working on baby number two, and then the next year had another newborn. So I was able to kind of do both of these things that I wanted to do, where I was able to stay relevant in my career um, and in the industry, but I was also able to do all of the home things and kind of build that family life that I wanted. But I am not a permanent stay-at-home person. Um, So I wanted to kind of get doing a little bit of something more, but I didn't really want to be out on the road too, too much. Um, And I had a friend that was teaching at Columbia College Chicago. He was teaching uh, the class that I teach now, producing and touring live entertainment, and they were adding on some sections. And he was like, this is perfect for you to come do because it's a little bit of something so that you, you know, you can, your brain can stay active. And it's exactly when Warp Tour is not. So it's, you know, during the school year and then Warp Tour was always during the summer. So I was like, sure, that's like a first step into doing something, a little bit of something. And that it made me kind of discover my love of teaching and sharing the knowledge that I gained over the, the years, you know, with the next generation of uh, people doing what we're going to do. 
I wanted to look at ways beyond a typical four-year college experience to be able to teach people about the concert industry. And that's where uh, teaming up with Kevin Lyman and then Matt Halpern from Periphery um, on the Entertainment Institute was a great opportunity to take some educational teaching moments to people in other ways. So one of the things we did was create these backstage 40-minute workshops that the artists would hold on the Warp Tour. Um, and it was basically an elevated VIP experience where you got to come backstage and um, write a song with one of the artists that you just saw playing on stage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Some of them would do songwriting workshops. Some would do like guitar, like guitar workshops, drum workshops. So it, it started out um, – as a company called Band Happy that was very focused on teaching people how to play the instruments. And then it morphed when Band Happy shut down and we started doing it uh, as the Entertainment Institute. Um, it morphed into more conversations and kind of whatever the artist wanted to do. Some would almost hold like a variety show sort of uh, fun time. Some would have just like really deep conversations about how to, you know, survive high school while you're getting bullied. Um, and, and some were more musically focused. So that was a neat opportunity to help people in the audience learn from and be inspired from the people that are inspiring them that they see up on the stage. Um, so it was a really unique thing to be able to work on loved walking backstage and like seeing those workshops happen. And especially with like, some of them would be kind of small. There'd just be like a couple of students with like one person. I'm thinking like that person's learning how to play drums from like this kick-ass drummer, like basically one-on-one, like what a special right. moment. That is really cool. Yeah. Very cool. And artists have that power to, uh, you know, change people's lives when they get that personal contact, that personal interaction with fans. So, uh, Kudos to you for facilitating. And uh, I, I definitely want to see more of that actually coming back to the concert industry moving forward. See artists get more active and engaged on a personal human level while on tour when they're not spending that hour or two a day up on the stage. Yeah. And otherwise could be, you know, changing people's lives. So Education, of course, has become more important to you or has always perhaps been important to you. But as you referenced, you are teaching at Columbia College in Chicago. Um, you've become involved with showmakers along with Jim Digby. Um, you created this online workshop series, which to all our listeners, jenkellogg.com, check it out, two L's, two G's, jenkellogg.com. Check out the virtual workshop series. But, I mean, tell us a little bit about this interest in music, this passion for education that you clearly have. Well, I think that um, back when I was learning about the industry, there weren't good resources to go seek out. You had to just find humans that were willing to let you pick their brain. And I remember at the time always thinking, like, when I have the opportunity to teach people about this, uh, this is how I'm going to do it. Or these are the things I would want to proactively tell people about um, rather than them. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And so the, the workshop series that I started was really, I wanted to take the lectures that I do at Columbia college and record them because I knew that we were going to be virtual in the fall. And also I've been teaching that class since 2013. So I've done the same lecture twice a year for 
all of those years, like I've done those lectures. I'm a little bit bored with those lectures. <laughs> so I wanted to like get them recorded so that the students could watch them. And then we could spend our in-class time doing more hands-on work on those topics rather than just sitting there and listening to me talk. Um, so that was kind of my inspiration in, in doing that. And it seemed like um, the time to do it. We were, I, we were at home, there's a pandemic, everybody's doing stuff on Zoom. So, you know, it's not as important to have a high production, fancy studio or anything like it just our world became much more kind of accepting of, you know, we're doing things from our house. Um, so that kind of led me I've known Jim Digby for, um, I don't know, 15 years or so. And he saw what I was doing and said, Hey, can we kind of, you know, highlight this on, uh, you know, this thing that we're putting together? And I said, sure. And we started then working on showmakers together. So from the time that, um, we started working really kind of took a look at what do we want the organization to be? How can we, um, help, the people that work in live events, both professionally and personally, grow themselves. Um, how can we help build community around this and really bring some tangible takeaways in, in an educational format so that people can really develop their careers and to take themselves to the next level? Well, we are big fans of showmakers, big fans of yours and of Jim's. We believe very much in the importance of, uh, again, of, of touring at the college, touring education, music education with an emphasis on touring. I find that so many of the music programs coming up, they focus on labels and publishing and they barely touch on you know, the touring side. So I appreciate that you're doing that. Are, are there other classes at Columbia college that are focused on touring? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, I shouldn't hem and haw. Yes, there definitely are. So most of the, I'm hemming and hawing cause I'm going to have to remember the exact like thing here. There's um, the major that some of the students have is, it involves the live side of, of the music industry. Um, so they have like the business of live events or the business. I'm see, I'm not going to, it's not my class. So I don't remember what the exact names of it, That's but okay. there's <laughs> definitely people, uh, majors that are focused on the live side. Um, they also of course have plenty of majors focused on the re- business of the recorded side, um, as well, but yeah. Okay. And and just out of curiosity, is there any sort of pipeline for actually getting jobs, you know, and opportunities to kids coming out of Columbia, moving into the industry? Is there any sort of established mentorship programs or anything of that nature? Well, being a four-year college, they have a great career center and internship, uh, you know, companies can list their internships there. Uh, I've certainly hired some of my former students on things that I'm working on. And I... I'm always happy to make connections for people when they've especially spent 15 weeks in my class demonstrating that they're on time and a hard worker and understand the course material and, you know, are just generally a bright with it engaged person, happy to make connections. So, you know, I think our industry really, um, we rely on who do we know and the networking aspect of that. Um, I think that there's some organizations out there that are, trying to come up with some systems to pre kind of vet 
people. So it's, you don't, we don't have to rely as much on that word of mouth reference of, I know this person, so I'm going to put them in touch with somebody else. Um, but I think that college students, what they learn in the class is going to help them once they have their first job, do that job better and get the next job faster. I think that the networking though, uh, is really how most people are going to get their first jobs and, and, and future jobs in the industry. You know, every job that I got from leaving jam until right now to this day is somebody has thought about me and reached out to me when they had an opening. And we just have an industry where there's, there's sometimes there's job boards and job listings, but mostly it's just, have you been remembered and thought about when, when somebody knows that they're hiring? Um, so building those relationships and starting, especially for the college students, they should outside of class be doing things where they're volunteering at, uh, festivals or other events at venues. They should be doing internships that are related to the field that they want to work in, um, as much as possible because those connections and just being, I mean, when the pandemic's not happen, happening physically in the same space, like at the shows and seeing people in person and connecting with people in person um, is really essential towards, you know, the, the first early steps in one's career. Couldn't agree more. So shifting back to showmakers, then, so again, speaking of along similar lines, resources being provided and, you know, people need to seek out the opportunities and, and find ways to connect. You're clearly very much a connector. Um, you know, is there anything at, coming down the pipeline in the near, in near future at Showmakers that we should be looking forward to? Yes. Well, currently, if you go to showmakers.com, you will see one of our most recent additions is a fantastic podcast called Hustle Like You Broke in our Showmakers <laughs> family of podcasts. So uh, we hope that that is an excellent resource for all of the um, our, our audience out there. Uh, but one of the big things that we have coming up is our involvement in NAMS. Believe in Music Week. So NAM is the National Association of Music Merchants, and they have a huge show annually in Anaheim that um, attracts uh, music manufacturers, music retailers, lots of houses of worship, a lot of pro audio. Um, and they have a really great trade show floor where you can see all the latest and greatest new products. But they really put a lot of focus on their educational sessions as well. So um, we are producing um, a run of sessions for their all virtual believe in music week during um january 18th through the 22nd um so i believe that is free for anybody that wants to attend this year virtually it'd be a great networking opportunity um and we really tried to pull together sessions that um kind of highlight the things behind the job we're actually doing. So we have some things on mental health. We have some insight into um, what some different careers on, in the touring world are like. Um, we've got a future of leadership and live events session that I think is going to be really great. Um, we're looking at global touring and the new reality. What's it going to look like when we actually get back to being on the road? So being able to pull those together and, and kind of bring some great minds that are really thinking about all of this stuff during this pause that we're in. Um, we're bringing that to NAM, and uh, hope that lots of your listeners can join us there. Well, I certainly would encourage them. I think Jim might ask, 
have asked me if I could actually join in something you guys are doing. Although I have to go back <laughs> to my notes and see what that was. So in our partnership, Jim's the one that asks people to join, and then I figure out what exactly that means. <laughs> Perfect. Um, if so you could let me know, please. <laughs> frankly, all of you, I'm gonna we're gonna figure out like some mentoring uh, sessions during Nam, and I would love to have you guys all on if you're willing to come on and do some mentoring or some Q and A or whatever. So part of this is we're just now getting into we're recording this in December. We've I've just gotten access to like the platform that's being used, so really understanding how to best uh, create experiences while we're at NAM is something that I'm in the middle of doing. So I will get back to you with the specifics, but would love to have you guys share your expertise and, and do some mentoring for sure. We'll be there. Absolutely. Assuredly. Yes. I I think that is what it was, Jim referenced. And and as our listeners know, anytime anyone has a question, I freely give out Kyle's cell phone. So I am more than happy to offer his services for anybody inquiring. Well, Jen, you've been a phenomenal guest. Before we get you out of here, we always ask our guests a couple of quick hits before you go. So briefly, your first tour, what was it? Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson. Wow. What year? Very cool. And uh, 2004. And uh, it was the very first of the minor league ballpark tours. So my very first, so I had covered shows as a talent buyer, but that was the first tour that I was on, like the full tour, like on a tour bus. Um, And the very first show on that tour was at Double Day Field um, in Cooperstown. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. And do you have a favorite moment or experience you'd like to relay? And no pressure. It doesn't have to be the favorite moment. And you don't have to worry about disrespecting one person because you chose somebody else. Just a favorite moment. I feel like I have to qualify that because so many of the people we asked that to, they say, oh, I don't want to disrespect somebody else by, by not saying them. Just pick one. So Scranton, Pennsylvania every year so they had at the warp tour um you know one of the great things about being on tour is food especially like that like that special food that you can only get in one place every year and so we would have there were certain things uh in indy it was the uh frozen custard in um god why can't i think of where it is that had the garlic fries anyway um in scranton it's the pizza they have the best pizza in Scranton, and I can't remember the name of the local vendor that showed up to sell the pizza every year, but um, one of my besties on tour, we would always do a, a, a pizza lunch date, and we go, you know, instead of getting catering, sometimes you got to mix it up, uh, and we'd go get the local pizza. And one year, standing under a tent in, like, the burning heat, eating this fantastic pizza, he said, you know what? This is the thing that I miss in the middle of February is hanging out with a friend, eating pizza in the middle of the warp Tour in the summer. And it is one of the sweetest things anybody has ever said to me. And I, I, it's what I miss in the middle of February, too. When we're sitting at home wishing we were on tour, I would love to be. And now I have celiac disease, so I can't even eat that pizza anymore. So I really wish that I could just go back to like eating that pizza in the middle of like a hot, sweaty tour with one of my best friends. I like that. Good. I like that a lot. So my favorite question, I mm-hmm. ask every guest, if there is any one thing about the business you think that we should be doing better moving forward. 
What oh, is it? Well, if there's one thing, <sighs> I think that we need to remember that uh, there we're, we're putting our lives out there on the road, and we need to take care of the humans that are executing that on the road from day to day. Um, I want to see agents and managers and artists who are approving routings. I want Mm. them to see them approving routings that have a livable component to them. Um, People should have enough time to sleep. We should not be asking drivers to drive unreasonable distances. We should have, uh, we should be giving people days off that are rejuvenating and refreshing. Um, I heard Chris Gratton say on your podcast that he with uh, Bieber built in an hour a day of downtime, family time. That was the most like refreshing thing to hear. Um, That type of thing is critical to the mental health and the physical health and well-being of the people that we have out on the road. And I think that that is the thing that uh, if you're sitting if you're listening to this and you spend most of your work life in an office creating these tours, I really want those people to think about what it's like to live it. Cause I know I've looked at spreadsheets and we are just looking at a spreadsheet going like, Oh, that we can do that. Oh, we can just throw another show in there. It's just lines on a spreadsheet. And it's so different when you're out there day to day, you know, throwing one more show in there where it was supposed to be a day off. Yes. That's good for the bottom line, but that is hard on the people that are executing it. And it, and living it is a, a whole different experience than just looking at it on a spreadsheet. I love that. Great answer. Thank you. So we'll get you out of here on this. Any shout outs or parting shots? Um, well, I want to thank you guys so much for having me on. This was super fun. I really enjoyed hanging out and chatting with you and, uh, yeah, I mean, check out showmakers.com and, um, if you want to, my workshops are on there. So hopefully if you're interested in understanding the mechanics of how the finances of the business work, I hope I can uh, shed some light on those things on the workshops. Amazing. Dallas, anything from you today? On this exciting new year, um, you know, just so we have a better one than last year. Moving forward. I look forward to being back out there, getting us all out there. Enough said. Banks. Uh, be kind to one another in this new year. Let's get back to being respectable. Let's erase all this BS that we've been dealing with for the last several years. Let's get back to being kind and respectful to one another there it is brother hamilton stay accurate keep your hands clean all right well on that note (laughs) happy new year again to all of our listeners jen kellogg thank you for being with us today showmakers.com jen kellogg.com two l's two g's check it out you know where to find us hustle like you broke HLUB podcast on Instagram. Send us your questions as always. Let's keep the conversation going. Let's keep our heads up. We hope all of our listeners had a happy holidays. We hope you are of sound mind and body. You are taking care of yourselves and you are looking forward to a great, prosperous 
generally happy 2021. And on that note, we thank you and good 